I want to thank Research Consultants International for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion in projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about research consultants. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic development organizations. Call them now. They can help you create real prospects. Hello and welcome to this episode of Next Move Group's We Are Jobs podcast. Today we've got Gary Clark with us, and Gary's the economic developer in Fremont, Nebraska, but is also an author of a book called Unlikely Viking, which is about coming from the D.C. projects to rural Nebraska, and it's just a great book, and I think you all are really going to enjoy getting to know Gary's story today. I know I've enjoyed it. So, Gary, thank you for being with us today, and why don't you tell us a little bit about Unlikely Viking? Thanks for having me, Chad. Uh, Unlikely Vikings about my my journey from D.C. to rural Nebraska. It's my memoir that came out. I actually ended up becoming a uh, national champion at Dana College in Blair, Nebraska, believe it or not, and also breaking uh, 11 records in total uh, in my time there. So the story talks about just uh, the rough upbringing that I had in Washington, D.C., and all the opportunities and advantages I achieved and received once I uh, got to a rural place, which I did not expect. So basically, you grew up in D.C., and uh, you were good at track. And as as, as I understand it from the book, uh, you really didn't know where you wanted to go, but you had prayed that you wanted to help people, and, and you knew you wanted a different life than you had, and Next thing you know, you're on an airplane to rural Nebraska where you've been offered a track scholarship. So uh, walk us through kind of your upbringing and how how the fact that you were good at track got you to Nebraska and what you thought when you first got off that airplane there in Nebraska when you landed. Yeah, so, um, you know, when I was growing up in Washington, D.C., we were were in public housing and we were – uh, homeless a few times. And so my upbringing was really rough. And, but in track and field at, at an early age, I realized that um, I had a talent and a gift. And in a roundabout way, my senior year, I had an, a scholarship offer opportunity to attend American University in DC. And that opportunity fell through. And last minute, sight unseen, um, I agreed to a provisional acceptance at Dana and without a full scholarship or anything initially. And the flight took me to Omaha. It was my first flight ever. And I tell you, when, when we were landing, I had never seen a rural place before <laughs> like that. And the tears started to roll down my eyes um, when, when I saw that approach of cornfields and, and whatnot. But it turned out to be a great experience because uh, – Maybe a few months later, I had a 3.9 GPA 
I had uh, opportunities to run track and field, and the rest is kind of history. So you grew up basically in the shadows of the White House, right? I mean, when we say yeah. D.C., you were right there. Yeah, I grew up in uh, just not too far from North Capitol Street in a place they called Brooklyn Manor off of 14th Street, Northeast D.C. And um, in my later years, we had moved to Southeast D.C., which was even rougher at that time. Uh, with all the gang violence and shootings. So, uh, yeah, we were in the area that wasn't necessarily the tourist attraction side, but <laughs> maybe 15 minutes away from the White House. So talk about in your book, you say that at a, at a time, at a young age, you prayed that you wanted opportunity to help people. So take us back to when you were a little boy and you really knew nothing about rural. You know, all you obviously knew is what you saw every day. What, what was kind of in you to make this difference that, that, that led you to being who you are now? Yeah, uh, so I experienced so much at that time, seeing how my neighborhood was and how difficult it was in the 80s and 90s, early 90s. And I used to pray that, number one, that my family would be saved from the conditions that we were in. And number two, that, you know, I would have an opportunity to impact the community um, and that um, my life would have some meaning because, I knew that I didn't want to stay in that cycle and I didn't want others to have to experience it. So luckily through those prayers, they were answered because I ended up getting a full scholarship to the University of Nebraska at Omaha for uh, urban studies, public administration. And I get to focus on economic de development. I get to focus on uh, community development in my current job. And so it's, it's a blessing. You know, I'm a big believer that sports can change people's lives. They can change the trajectory of their lives. So if it weren't for being good at track, I mean, where do you think you would be? That's what got you to Nebraska. Have you ever thought to yourself, what if I wasn't good at track? Would you still be in D.C.? Or do you think you would have still found your way to, to rural Nebraska somehow? You know, I probably wouldn't have come to rural Nebraska. You know, I, I probably would have been in some other field or it, or needless to say, maybe I wouldn't have gotten out of that cycle of violence and drugs and crime. And so honestly, sports were, it was a gateway to another opportunity for me, another way of life. Um, and it taught me the opportunities that could come from uh, being on a team and, and how to be confident in meeting new people. Um, so a lot of things came out of uh, just being involved in track and field and cross country. Yeah. You know, I, I'm drawn to your story. It's almost like the two of us have swapped places because I was raised in, in a very rural town in Mississippi and, uh, and I was a good golfer. I just stumbled into golf. None of my family had played and, and I had a talent for it and got, got good at it. And, uh, and, and that world ended up really taking me to big city. My first flight was in the golf world, flying to Fall Hills, New Jersey, to work for the USGA. So oh, wow. I've got the same – I'm opposite of you. I went from rural to, to that kind of exposed me to the big world. And I uh, said so I'm very drawn to your story. And I've often thought to myself, if it weren't for golf, uh, I'm sure I would still be successful doing something, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It's just funny how sports – can open you up just to a, to a whole new world. Uh, That's right. So given the fact that you choose rural life, um, having been raised in the metro area, you don't see a whole lot of people go from metro to rural. Usually it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. What is kind of your rural sales pitch? Not just for Nebraska, but obviously you have a passion for rural communities everywhere. So what would be your sales pitch to people as to why the rural life is a, is a decent way to go about it? 
I think one of the key things that I've learned is that if you believe in rural places, if you've never experienced them and you're coming from an urban place, uh, you're probably having a difficult time becoming a part of the community. But in a rural place, they need you. And there's opportunity directly to be a part of leadership if you have the tools to, to provide those services. And also, uh, rural places are very welcoming. Uh, they are one of the places where you can still have uh, some of the awesome discourse with people uh, that you'll ever have in life. So I just found the richness of rural places, um, the history, uh, the fact that you become neighbors so quickly, and people like the stability that you can find in rural places. So my pitch to most people would be that rural places, uh, we are the place that is the foundation for the food source for most of the country in the world. Um, we're the foundation for a lot of the historical uh, ways in which communities have come together. And so everybody, honestly, Chad, has a rural background in their story. So that's my pitch. Hey, I love it. And, and I want to ask you one more, one more question about your story. Then I want to shift to how good of an economic developer you are, because folks, we're talking to an award-winning economic developer, but I'm, I'm drawn to his story. So in the book, you talk about reading a book called uh, about a maniac McGee mm -hmm. and how that book really changed you. So tell us the story of maniac McGee and how that, how that works into your story. Yeah, so Chad, in sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade, I was living with uh, my aunt and uncle for a year because uh, my, mo my mother was actually on the street at this time and my father was in prison. And so I had nowhere to go. Um, I was having a tough year and my fifth grade school teacher gave me this book called Maniac McGee and it had this little uh, young guy who was an orphan who was out on the street and all he had was these rough sneakers and he could run really fast and he ended up going from uh, Pennsylvania to an all-white community to an all-black community and impacting that whole community and I just looked at my life at that time and I said man I can relate to this kid mm -hmm. feeling like you don't have a home but but through meeting people that you could build your own home in some way and so that book changed my life at that time. It, it gave me the confidence I needed to uh, run track. It gave me the confidence I needed to, to try and fight uh, for a different lifestyle. So I actually got a, an email from the author of Jerry Spinelli, uh, who wow. is Jerry Spinelli, of uh, Maniac McGee. And Jerry Spinelli said, hey, I'm buying your book, and I think it's a great story. So um, came full circle that a kid in fifth grade with nowhere to go really would uh, link up with an award-winning author like that. So, yeah. Well, before we shift over to more economic development, tell these folks the name of your book and where they might can find it if they're interested in it. Okay, so the name of my book is Unlikely Viking from the DC Projects to Rural Nebraska, and you can find it on Amazon.com, on BarnesandNoble.com, or at my website, which is ClarkSpeaks.com. All right, and we'll get another plug in it before we end because I want to encourage people to uh, to read it. So tell us about Fremont, Nebraska. I know you've had a uh, you've won some awards there for some of the deals you've done, and uh, tell folks where it is, how big it is, and uh, some of the good stuff going on there. Awesome. So Fremont is outside of the Omaha metro area. We're about a good 40 minutes from downtown Omaha, a good 25 from the outskirts of it. Uh, we're in northeast Nebraska. Currently, a community of 26,000 people, 
And uh, our our name and claim to fame has been just rural agriculture. Uh, we have always had a focus in food production. We used to have Hormel plant, which is now Old Stone. Uh, we most recently received an award for uh, acquiring and accomplishing the goal of the project, which is now Costco Lincoln Premium Poultry. Um, they are adding 800 to 1,000 jobs and starting a, a launch of their facility this fall. So we became a community of the year um, from the state of Nebraska diplomats. And then uh, I recently, with the help of some of my team, we raised uh, just about $2 million for workforce housing funds. Um, which uh, garnered me the award of uh, Midland Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award, which was really awesome. Wow, awesome. Well, I have to tell you, having been, I went up for the College World Series uh, in Omaha here a few weeks ago. My team's Mississippi State. Unfortunately, we, we didn't make it past Vanderbilt like nobody else did. But, but you guys are really leading, leading uh, probably the country on your efforts for housing. Uh, Iowa also, I spent some time both in Nebraska and Iowa while I was up there. And, uh, and I know both those states are really working hard on workforce housing. So uh, mm -hmm. talk about how long y'all been doing that. Is that a new idea? Is this something you guys have been, I just really didn't know a whole lot about it till two or three weeks ago. So is this something you've been working on for a long time or are these new ideas? Yeah, so Chad, this is kind of a new idea for our organization. I came on uh, two years ago and uh, their burning platform was recruitment of po uh, big projects. You know, it was the recruitment of going for big projects. And once you landed them, you started to realize, hey, this isn't the end of it. You got to also have workforce and you also have to have uh, housing. And so when I came on, it was my job to create programs that would uh, complement projects that we bring in. And so housing has only been a, a year and a half project, but in a year and a half, Chad, we've actually raised close to $3 million. We just added another $1 million for low to moderate income housing through our organization. And uh, I think it's something that the state is, is taking up really quickly now. And are those grant monies you're getting or, or you got some private money or how are you raising that money? I've done a combination. We did a local, I was able to raise private dollars up to uh, just over $1 million in a short span of three months. And then we matched those dollars with the state, uh, with the state funds, which was about 800,000 that they gave us. And then most recently with local option sales tax dollars, I gave a pitch to the city council and received an additional 1 million. Um, and that was tied to uh, some efforts that we needed to do for low to moderate income housing and also flood relief. Well, yeah. Talk about the floods. I was going to ask you about that. I know you, uh, you all have had a lot of flooding up there and down where I live in new Orleans, we're getting all that water now, so we're having it too. So talk about how y'all are recovering from that. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of us are immune to the flood issues in the U S and so, um, my sympathies to every uh, community that has to go through that. We most recently had one, uh, early spring and it actually impacted over uh, about 1500 units in our in our community and so we had a housing study done in 2017 that said we needed to add about 1500 units and we'd be increasing our growth of the community by 2000 and now we need to add an additional 1000 uh, units to, wow. to offset those issues and so we've been able to do that. We actually have about 1,000 units that are going into the ground now. So apartments and, uh, and single family homes. 
I know there's a, a, a rural development organization that you remember the board. I think you might be in line to be chair on the executive committee. Talk about that organization and, uh, and, and what you've learned through it. Chad, you're great, man. These are great questions. So um, the National Rural Economic Development Association, uh, which was established many years ago uh, before my time, uh, but they are partners with uh, places like Touchstone Energy, uh, a lot of the rural uh, telco organizations, and their goal is to create capacity opportunities in rural places. So I've been on the board for about three and a half years, and I am uh, currently uh, the second vice president, and I will be president in about a year and a half or so. So, you know, part of, part of our podcast series really is to, to let economic developers hear best practices and, and, uh, and almost as a little training opportunity for them. So uh, you've won Community of the Year, Deal of the Year in rural Nebraska. You're on the National Rural Organization Board to, to grow the economy. Your, your story is powerful. You choose rural America because you want to be there. So what tips would you give? What, what have you learned? I guess, uh, is the key to really having success in, uh, in growing economies in rural areas? Well, I think the first thing is to, to be fearless in your ideas and concepts and to believe in your leadership team as well. Um, we do a lot of things in economic development, especially in rural places, but none of that is done without a good team of leaders, a good community to back you, and you cannot take no for an answer sometimes. You have to continue to find solutions to the problems that exist in your community. And I love that. I love that energy about the job, that every day it's a new opportunity to do something or impact something differently. And so my first and foremost example and advice would be to never give up. Always have that energy and vigor to impact your community. And if you can do those things, I think impacts and opportunities will happen in your community. I'd be curious to ask you, um, when you talk about creating a pipeline of leadership in rural communities, so this is a weakness that I see as I travel the country. So this is no no community in particular, but uh, you know, I used to be an economic developer, been in this business now five years, so I still remember some of, some of what I used to do. Um, and one of the frustrations that I had and I see across the country is, you know, no matter how successful an economic developer is on an annual basis or every few years, we change their chairman. You know, they have to deal with politics as a new mayor elected. You right. know, constant change. And, you know, a good way to run any organization, look at the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, they've had the same coach, the same owners. For, you know, <laughs> stability is the way you run any successful organization. And, and as I talk to folks in economic development and all my travels, one of the frustrations I see is, even when people are successful, we're constantly changing who they answer to and how they're structured and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. how, what, what have you found is, is best practice for creating a pipeline of leaders so that when you do have a new chairman, that person comes in there and they have some knowledge or, you know, you're not just totally changing horses every year too. Cause I, this really yeah. frustrates me for the whole country and I'm not yeah. picking on anybody in particular, but, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Chad, you make a good point. And in my experience, I mean, I've lived in uh, Gainesville and Newberry, Florida. I've lived in Washington, D.C. And uh, but for the bulk of my career, I've been in uh, northeast Nebraska. And my first job as an economic developer here in northeast Nebraska was in a place called Cumming County. I was the county economic developer and it started from scratch. 
And for six years I was there and I had the same board chair all six years. And we worked behind the scenes to keep that entire board intact my, my entire six years. But when I left, uh, that board kind of uh, changed and shifted. We had a lot of success with sustaining that board. Now, the key to it really is, is that you're not overworking your board leadership um, so mm, that they feel like, never thought feel about like, that. yeah, that they're not inundated with emails and, and meetings and whatnot, that you spread it out so that you're having impact, but you're also not burning them out. Um, now, in my current role, we have had the same board chair for about almost three years, but he's going to rotate off. But now we've had enough time to, to build up a base of knowledge for that next uh, president to come in and, and take the leadership. So there's two ways to do this. It's one is to find people that are willing to stay on board a little bit longer than normal. And another way is to make sure that you have a committee that focuses on your policies and focuses on leadership growth. I love that. It's, you know, one of the things we do is executive searches. And so we're, we're often helping communities hire an economic developer after one has left or they let them go. And, and, and you'd be shocked how many places I go where the economic developer was having some success. And next thing you know, they got a new chairman, a new mayor, a new city manager, mm-hmm. um, a, a new county manager, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this is no way to run something. I mean, you know, stability, yeah. stability is how you build most any organization. So I love your thoughts on that. Gary, give these folks your book one more time. I want to encourage them to go out there and read it and, uh, and tell them how they can find it. Thanks, Chad. You know, I'll say one final thing about that policy thing, though. You mentioned the county board and the city board and organizations. As long as these organizations that are economic development organizations focus on public policy, they can impact who's coming on as leaders, too. Um, they can find Unlikely Viking at Marms and Noble. They can find it at Amazon.com, as well as my website, which is uh, ClarkSpeaks.com. And I'd really appreciate the support. ClarkSpeaks.com, folks. I hope you all have enjoyed Gary as much as I have. I'm, I'm drawn to his story. I was drawn to his story before I found out what a good economic developer he was. But then seeing the stuff he's done, it just, uh, it just gives me great encouragement for, for all of rural America. So, Gary, thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Chad. I appreciate it, sir. A special thank you to Younger Associates for recording, editing, and publishing this podcast for us. I encourage you to visit their website at younger-associates.com.